And so in light of these things and some other things going on, we're about to embark on a, about a 30 Sunday morning, 30 week study of the Bible. Beginning to end. Today we'll do the book of Genesis and we'll move on from there. Often we'll do two or three books a week. So it's going to be an overview. But we do that here so that we will not be like the people there who have little or no knowledge of the faith which we ascribe to. I ran across some scary statistics which are, I could not substantiate, but I, they may not be all that far off the mark. 98% of all people that say they believe in Jesus Christ have never read the Bible through once. An accompanying statistic, again, I can't substantiate this, but it says 90% of all pastors have never read the Bible through once. Another statistic was a little more generous. It said less than 10% of Christians have read the entire Bible. The most generous one I could find was that about 22 to 25% have read the Bible in its entirety. So guess what extraordinary opportunity is coming your way? Um, so that you will not be numbered amongst those um, who have never read the great sacred writing that many of you hold in your lap right now. Over the next 30 weeks or so, I'm going to be reading through the Bible, studying the whole Bible, teaching through the entire Bible, and you can read along with me. So you've got two weeks to read the book of Genesis before I get to Exodus, okay? And I think that's a very manageable thing. If you've never read through the Bible... Um, this is an extraordinary opportunity for you because it only makes sense if we really believe the Bible to be the words of God to us and to all peoples that we ought to read that thing cover to cover. And if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, this is your great opportunity because we want to get a sense for what God is doing in history and where our lives fit in. A few weeks ago, um, I taught through a sermon that was an overview of the Bible in one fell swoop, Genesis to Revelation. And I, I likened it to a drama that's unfolding in six great acts. And I, I gave to you some key words to think about those acts. Act one is creation. Act two is sin. Act three, God chooses Israel to be his people. Act four is the coming of Jesus. Act 5 is the birth and sending of the church to the nations. And Act 6 is the end, the completion of all that is. And that's a helpful little outline, very general outline, that we'll be using throughout this study to help you see where the different parts of the Bible fit in. Now today, I want to teach the book of Genesis. And Genesis goes Act 1, Act 2, and partway through Act 3, which, as you can imagine, I'm already in trouble if I've got to get through 50 chapters of Genesis. So let's get started. Um, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By merely his word, everything that you've ever heard or touched or smelled or tasted or breathed was spoken into existence by God. In the book, The Drama of Scripture, the writers describe it this way. They say, reading the first chapter of Genesis is a bit like what might happen to you at a really great art exhibition. Suppose you're sitting quietly, overwhelmed by the beauty and power of the magnificent paintings, and then someone approaches you and says, 
How would you like to meet the artist? Genesis chapter 1 is an introduction to the artist. And what an introduction it is, they say that the first three words of the Hebrew Bible are the words that are translated, in the beginning, God created. In three short Hebrew words, we're transported back to the origin of everything. To the mysterious personal source of all that is, the eternal, uncreated God. This God, who himself has no beginning and no end, merely speaks a word of command in order to bring into being everything else that exists. Now we're going to go through the book of Genesis as creation unfolds and God's plan starts to unfold through looking at the lives of six men whose lives pretty much span the remainder of the book of Genesis. And the very first of those men is Adam. And his sto- he enters into this story In verse 26 of the first chapter, God said, let's make man in our image. Let's make man. We'll call him Adam. And in our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God makes man as the pinnacle of his creation in the image of God to represent God, to be like God in unique ways, set apart from all the rest of his creation. He makes them male and female, and the first couple are Adam and Eve. And the rest of the early chapters of Genesis are this beautiful story of God in the garden with Adam and Eve. They walk, they have communion, they have fellowship. It's a beautiful place. And Adam and Eve are tending it and caring to it under God's instruction. At the end of all this, the end of the first chapter, God saw all that he made and it was very good because God is very good. That's the end of the first act in this drama. The second act we called uncreation. Sin enters into the picture. It's unexpected. It follows such peace and beauty in that first act of creation. But the second act turns quickly to a tragedy because Satan comes to the woman, to Eve, and tempts her, and she believes him as he twists God's words and deceives her. And she eats of a forbidden fruit, as does her husband, Adam. And just that quickly, all that they had enjoyed in the garden is spoiled. Where they had once walked with God, now they hide from him. Where they once delighted in his garden, they are banished from its presence. Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God banished Adam from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so they've now been estranged from God. Adam and Eve have been estranged from each other. Their relationship is now marked by blaming and accusing. Their sin stains their children as well. We find in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, Cain, one of their children, says to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. 
And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his own brother Abel and killed him. So Adam has gone from walking with his wife, communing with God in the garden, to his son walking with his brother in a field and taking his very life, murdering his own brother. How far Adam has fallen. And how unexpectedly wide and deep are the consequences of his sin. Nobody envisioned this when they made the choice to disobey God back in the garden. See, from Adam's story, there's something I want to make sure that you don't miss this morning. And that is how wildly unexpected and severe are the consequences of sin. Nobody envisioned that that one act of disobedience would lead to all of this. His relationship with God is damaged. His marriage, his children, his work, the place he lived in, the whole world got twisted up because of one wrongful act. And the warning that's given by God to Cain in the fourth chapter of Genesis, it's for us. Verse 7, chapter 4, God says to Cain, if you'll do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must master it. See, every good thing, every single good thing you treasure in life Every joy-bearing, beautiful thing is jeopardized by the sin we tolerate. You know, from just one little choice to choose a path other than God's, um, just one quest to taste something forbidden has led to all of this in Genesis. And it plays out every day. Just ask Elliot Spitzer. Do you think he envisioned where he is now when he started down this path, whether it was 10 years ago or so? Adam, the first man, shouts to us a warning about sin and where it will take us. So let us throw off everything that hinders and the snare that so easily entangles us. But The beautiful thing in all of this is God doesn't ever abandon Adam. In spite of banishing him from the garden, God does a couple real interesting things. He extends to him a mysterious promise through a conversation with the serpent, with Satan. God says, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he, that woman's offspring, will crush Satan's head. And Satan will strike his heel. It's a promise that through Eve there would come one who would crush Satan's head. A mysterious promise that looks to the future. And there's a mysterious provision just a couple verses later. The Lord God on their way out of the garden makes garments of skin, of animal skin for Adam and his wife. And God clothes them. He makes this mysterious provision for them. See, now, a life, the life of an animal, had to be sacrificed to cover Adam's shame. And God does that on behalf of Adam. 
we see God's unwavering commitment to spare our race. Through Adam, but even more in the second man in Genesis, his name is Noah. And Noah's story starts unfolding about chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. It had all really gone downhill from Adam. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So... God decrees that there should come a judgment upon all of mankind and all of creation through a great flood, except for Noah and his family. And Noah's faith is marked out in radical obedience to God. He is instructed to go build an ark and wait for it to rain. These are two things probably that had never happened in the world up to this point in time. There likely had not been any rain at this point in time, and there was no ark. So for like a hundred years, Noah's out in his backyard building an ark, waiting for it to rain. And you thought I was asking a lot when I asked you to sign up for study serve, okay? But Noah's radical obedience finds favor with God and he's useful to God in an amazing way. His life is spared judgment. His family is spared It's like God is doing a divine do-over through Noah. He's going to wipe the slate clean of sinful man and start again, like he did with Adam. And while the world is subject to God's judgment, Noah is spared. Grace is shown to Noah. And God underscores this with a covenant with Noah. In chapter 9, it says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, God says. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all the earth. So Noah sees this amazing deliverance from God or by God. And he sees this promise in the sky that God will never do this again. But in spite of this, in spite of this, this exceptional man falls into sin. And only a page or so later, we find him lying drunken in his tent. And Noah's sons tragically follow after him in their sin. And it all kind of goes downhill from there, leading to Genesis chapter 11, where mankind, in an act of prideful autonomy from God, builds a thing we know as the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves and reach to the heavens. And God looks down upon their little tower and he judges them once again. In chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And this is the close of the second act in the unfolding drama of the Bible. And we find the whole world in rebellion and suffering under the just judgment of a holy God. The third act starts in the next chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, with the third man that I want to introduce you to. 
His name is Abram. We know him as Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to him, Leave your country, Abram, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. God promises that his goodness will come upon Abraham and all his descendants so that all the nations will be blessed. Abraham is being blessed so that he'll be a blessing to all peoples. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, God drives this point home in a really kind of eerie scene where Abraham takes animals and splits them in two. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all those to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And this is God's way of making an inviolable covenant with his people, underscoring his commitment to the promise that he's made to Abram. Now, this mysterious uh, scene is not enough In chapter 17, God is going to underscore his promises again with another sign. He gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, which I'm just betting when you're 99 and you get circumcised, that it has a way of burning that into your mind in a way that's absolutely unforgettable. And this is a sign that God gave to Abraham that he was going to be faithful to his covenants. And if these are not graphic enough reminders, these animals split in half with these mysterious fire passing between them and this 99-year-old circumcision happening, chapter 22 is given to Abraham for his most vivid lesson yet. Let me read the lion's share of that to you. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. Early the next morning, the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. Fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
and the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of, instead of his son. So Abraham called that place. The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations... All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And there's that unfailing promise of God being brought up again. See, in Abraham we see vividly, graphically, over and over and over, God is unshakably, unstoppably committed to his promises to be good and to restore his people, to restore all peoples, all creation to a right relationship with himself. And in this story, in Genesis 22, we find this amazing anticipatory act that points us towards a yet future fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. See, when Isaac is carrying that wood on which he is to die up that hill, when his life is about to be taken and they see that ram who's to be his substitute. And it all takes place on a place called Mount Moriah, which we now believe to be in the city of Jerusalem, perhaps even a mount outside of Jerusalem known as Calvary, where Jesus would one day come and accomplish his great work as he would carry the wood on which he was to die up the hill as a substitute for all who would believe in him. This whole scene shouts of Jesus' work on the cross and in his resurrection. The New Testament describes it this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, there is a thing operating in the world that's greater than the ravages of sin. It's the redemptive, loving grace of God. It's greater than all our sin. And this morning, you are privileged to hear the story of the great pointer to the cross saying, this is God's plan from the beginning. And it's an invitation for you to believe, to embrace, to trust, to follow. 
the Christ who would come and be the sacrifice for anyone who will trust in him to give life where death is justified. So today at the close of the service, you're going to get an opportunity to place your trust in the one who is hoped for in the sparing of the life of Isaac, in Jesus, who would come and carry the cross up Mount Calvary and die there for the sins of others, for the sins of the world. Today, I would suggest when you go home, sometime today, read chapter 22 with your family and just answer the question, how do we see Christ in this chapter? It's amazing. And I would encourage you to do that. Well, Genesis 30, 25, about to 36, thereabouts, um, introduces to us the next two men. We've been through um, Adam, Noah, and Abraham. The next two are Abraham's son, Isaac, and Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Isaac was the one who was just spared on that mountain by God's own provision, really the, the pinnacle of Isaac's life. Yet in chapter 26, rather than trust God, Isaac turns to deceit. And it's deceit in a pattern that he learned from his father, Abraham. Abraham had deceived in this exactly the same way. And so really, it's no great surprise that Isaac's own son and Abraham's grandson, Jacob, should also have a weakness for deceptive practices. Some say that's even what his name means. And he deceives his own brother. In chapter 27, he has a twin brother named Esau. And Esau says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He's deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. And Jacob struggles with this throughout his life of trusting God or trusting in his own deceptive resources. But God in mercy gives Jacob a new name, Israel. And 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And among those 12, Israel had a favorite son whose name was Joseph. And he's the sixth and final figure that we're going to look at in the story of Genesis. In chapter 37, it says, This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers. Joseph was Jacob's son the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Evidently, there was some sloppy shepherding going on, and he went and tattled to dad. This did not endear him to his brothers, because on top of it, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him, which also did not endear him to his brothers. He was obviously his father's favorite, And he had issued this bad report on them. And at this point, Joseph is envied to the point of hatred by his brothers. And they nearly kill him, but instead sell him into slavery, which lands him ultimately in Egypt. And I just want you to see, even in this cursory overview of Genesis, can you see what sin does to families? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, 
Joseph and his brothers, just to name a few. Sin ravages families. But we also see the mercy of God working in spite of sin and overcoming sin. And here he's going to work redemptively again through one man as he did through Noah and he did through Abraham. Now he's going to work through Joseph. He's the the focused character in the last part of the book of Genesis from chapters 37 through 50. In chapter 39, Joseph had been taken down, sold into slavery to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So in spite of being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, God is with him, and he ascends to be the head of of Potiphar's household. But this is not an exemption from suffering in Joseph's life because suffering is useful in God's great plan. So Joseph then will go to prison unjustly and he'll languish there in prison for years. And finally, he emerges from prison after being forgotten there because God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh, who's the leader of all Egypt, has a nightmare of a dream that none of his advisors can explain to him. So he's told of Joseph, and he calls Joseph before him and asks Joseph if he will interpret the dream for him. And you have to love Joseph's response. This is vintage Joseph in chapter 41. Can't do it, Joseph says to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. He's a man who honors God, who defers to God, who exalts God, who trusts God, even to where at work in the midst of his suffering. He interprets the dream and turns out it's a dream of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine consecutively. And through all of this, Joseph ascends to leadership in Egypt, overseeing the storage of grain during the seven rich years for distribution during the great famine that's coming. Thereby, becoming, this is fascinating, watch what this is, it says, all the countries came to Egypt. Joseph becomes a blessing to the nations. That theme again, to buy, they came to buy grain from him because the famine was severe in all the world. Now, his own brothers, the very ones who sold him into slavery, are also compelled by the famine to seek grain from Egypt. And unbeknownst to them, from their long-lost brother Joseph, that they had sold into slavery. And so they are brought before Joseph. They don't recognize him. It's been so long and he's changed so much. And there before him are his brothers who betrayed him, nearly killed him, and they are at his mercy. How will Joseph respond? We see that's why you got to read the book of Genesis. All right, I'll I'll give you a little spoiler. Spoiler warning. If you're going to read the book of Genesis, this is a spoiler warning right here. In verse chapter 45, Joseph, his brothers come close to him. They don't know who he is. He says, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, 
the one you had sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. After betrayal and slavery and being forgotten in prison and unjustly accused, it was God who sent me here. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. When their father dies, the brothers are concerned in chapter 50 and they come to Joseph and they throw themselves down before him saying, we are your slaves, fearing him once again. But Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph trusts God to be sovereign and good even when he can't see it, even when he is suffering greatly, even when he's been betrayed by his family and sold into slavery and falsely accused and forgotten in prison. Because he sees that God has done these things just to get him where God wants him at just the right time so he can bring God's goodness even to those who have wronged him. You have to love the way the book of Genesis closes with these words from Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He closes with this great reminder to his brothers and to us, God will be faithful to his promises. He will be good to his people so that they can be good to the nations. They will be blessed in order to be a blessing. God will be faithful, even through hardship, to keep his promises. So this morning, from where you sit, with what you face, will you trust God to be faithful to his promises? Can you see how his story unfolds in Genesis and points towards the cross of Christ and the ultimate goodness after much suffering and much waiting, but always faithful. God has kept his promise. Will you trust him to bring good to a broken world through you, to you, even through your suffering? As the worship team comes to lead us in a closing response of worship, I want to encourage you to listen to the voices of the men whose stories we've heard today. We've been warned about our sin. We've been challenged to trust God and to obey Him and to believe in His sovereign goodness even when we can't see it amidst our suffering. And maybe one of their stories, God is speaking to you and saying, walk in this way. Trust me with what you're facing. Turn away from your sin. And maybe He's saying to you, trust my provision. 
for your sin in my son on Mount Moriah outside of Jerusalem. For the very first time today, God is showing you how you can enter into a relationship of trust with him because Jesus is bearing your sin. And so as the team leads us, I want to encourage you, if, if you want to come for prayer, you can make your way down for the front and have, have a time of, of prayer and dedication to the Lord as he's speaking to you. And if you want one of our leaders to pray for you, all you have to do is come down here and just look kind of forlorn back towards somebody in the front rows. We're waiting there. We'd be happy to come and pray with you. We don't have special hats or name tags. Just look back towards us and we'll pick up on it. We'll be happy to come pray with you. Um, But as God has spoken to you today, let's respond to him in worship and obedience as we declare Christ to be our great and solid rock. Let's stand and worship God together.